Welcome to another episode of whatever we're calling this. The podcast of comparative literature and cultural studies at the University of Arkansas. Today, we invited Mitchell Simpson to talk about conferences. Mitchell is a PhD student at the University of Arkansas. Mitchell, do you mind uh, tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and what are you doing at the University of Arkansas? Yeah, um, although I'm, I'm sure the amount of people who don't know me far <laughs> outsize the amount of people who do. Um, I'm a medievalist at the uh, here at the University of Arkansas. Well, I'm a, a PhD candidate. I'm not a medievalist yet. I'm still in the process of getting to use that term officially. Um, but uh, yeah, I focus on um, England and Wales, uh, which is why I'm in the English department. Um, I work with uh, Dr. Josh Smith. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of, um, I'd say like my research really focuses on sort of like religious literature and sort of um, what's that sort of um, uh, pulls out of people's experiences. Mitchell, why did you choose uh, medieval literature? I, I I know that you read, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Latin, Greek, mm -hmm. and I don't read Greek. A, a different kind of languages. So I'm yeah. kind of curious, uh, how did you end up with with this particular field? Yeah, um, in my undergraduate, I took every language I could. Um, I, I even did that in high school for uh, whatever. I've just always loved learning languages. I've loved the way that it's opened up the world for me and um, being able to see things from new perspectives. Um, and uh, so we have, um, so, so Dr. Smith is, uh, I think has a very similar approach. Um, and I took a couple classes with him in my undergraduate. Um, he successfully uh, parlayed me into becoming a medieval and Renaissance undergraduate. And um, at the time he was getting ready to do a uh, middle Welsh class. Um, I think that was gonna, I think that was the first semester um, I had, I was doing my MA back in 2016. And, uh, and, and so I was like, I gotta stay, I gotta do that. That's something I've always wanted to do. Um, there really aren't a whole lot of programs in North America where you can study Welsh, um, much less, uh, you know, medieval Welsh. Um, and, uh, and yeah, um, you know, medieval studies, I think requires, uh, like complet requires, um, a lot of, um, facility in, uh, more than one language. And so it was just sort of a natural fit for my interests. Um, and I think, uh, I've always kind of enjoyed history too. So it was kind of, it was a way to pair a lot, bring a lot of interests sort of into one tent. Now, Mitchell, you mentioned something about uh, your undergraduate program. Now, uh, because I'm from Colombia and I don't mm -hmm. know the education system in the U.S., what kind of suggestion and advice can you offer to undergraduate students who are they're just taking classes right now and they don't know what to choose, what to pick? So mm -hmm. any recommendations, if maybe we have any graduate student uh, listening right now? Yeah, um, I think for me, I just sort of followed my interests right you have your core uh, courses of course that you have to knock out um, but then after that you've still got a pretty good amount of time for um, uh, extracurriculars I suppose might be a way to phrase it um, and if you just sort of follow those interests and um, let let this class speak to you because I mean um, I, I think that that's sort of how I found it as I as I sort of like I was like oh this class looks interesting I, um, the first one I can think of is uh, it was a it was a middle German course and it just kind of kind of struck me as interesting um and I took it and I really enjoyed it and I realized that I wasn't quite as interested in the 20th century literature I was more interested in this you know 
15th, 14th century literature. Um, and then I use that to help pick new classes. And so, um, I don't know, I think, I think probably, uh, I don't know, maybe that's a non-answer, just. <laughs> uh, no, go. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I think um, letting those, port, those past classes that you enjoyed help you pick the ones that are coming up, like pick the ones for the next semester, I think was what helped me be most successful in my undergraduate is. Um, and so I think, like sometimes I don't, I recognize that I didn't have the romantic notion of the American college experience of having this, um, you know, incredibly varied uh, um, course portfolio. Um, I was um, sort of always kind of getting ready for a specialization. Um, but it also meant that the stuff I was taking, I was really engaged with, and I didn't, you know, I, I was always happy to give the time to it. Yeah, so um, a, a lot of students, you know, do that in the first two years, two and a half years. Mm -hmm. By the by, the third year, fourth year particularly, they're beginning to panic as to what they're going to do when they go out, right? Yeah. So um, did that sort of anxiety hit you uh, when you were specializing towards uh, the medieval area of studies? Uh, yes, and I think that's why I went to graduate school. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, okay Mitchell uh, that's a nice connection because we're talking about follow your interest graduate school now uh, I am curious what are you doing uh, right now for your research uh, we are interested in conferences so we mm -hmm. heard that, that you are doing in, the, in that particular area so can you tell us a little bit about that uh, yeah um so, so where I'm in, in my program is I'm getting ready to take comps. Um, and so I'm still negotiating with my advisor um, what my comps reading list needs to look like um, for what my interests are, which are um, religion and literature, uh, materiality, and um, uh, uh, like the Celtic fringe. So, um, so Wales and Ireland um, and sort of the, the borderlands of, of, of England that uh, up, um, um, is adjacent to those countries. Um, however, uh, where my research is sort of most productive right now, and I think that's because it's not stalled out trying to figure out this bibliography is, um, is, is conferences. And I've always, um, I started going to conferences in my master's. And so if I have a suggestion for that, it's don't ever feel like it's too early to go to a conference. Um, so I, I know that I've talked to a few people who are in their master's program, who felt like that because they were master students, they were they weren't ready to go to a conference. But the thing is, is um, if your idea has merit, it it doesn't matter where you're at in your education, and you should really take that opportunity to go to those conferences um, and uh, learn what it's like to um, communicate with scholars in those um, you know like have those scholarly exchanges. Um, no one's going to attack you. I think the first thing I was most worried about in a conference was that I was going to get like eviscerated by the audience. And the thing is, is that if, if they're not interested or they have issues with it, most of the time they just ask questions to the other panelists. So um, it's a really nice, it turns out it's a lot um, lower stakes than it might seem at first. Um, but most recently I presented at um, the uh, Japan Society for uh, Medieval European Studies. Um, that was this summer in Tokyo. And then um, this upcoming year, I'm going to be presenting at uh, the um, International Congress for Medieval Studies at Kalamazoo, Michigan, and then also um, in Leeds, England. Um, the, the thing is, is, none of those projects, though, are like they're building towards something. They sort of like touch on a lot of my interests, um, but they don't really have like a, a common narrative 
uh, thread. So like uh, the Japan Society um, conference was about the Ishlinga Met Kunglina, um, which is a little sort of like fable-like tale from Ireland um, about uh, a scholar's um, uh, uh, vision of another world made out of food and comparing that with some of the other world motifs in um, the Book of Muhammad's Ladder. Um, and then the ones that are coming up, I'll be presenting on um, the evil in Tolkien's work at Kalamazoo and uh, the relationship of a couple of Welsh poets in, um, in, over the summer at Leeds. All right. So, Mesh, you, uh, you've been presenting since your master's, you uh, tell us. So um, a lot of students have, you know, like random good ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, when do you seal an idea? When do you say that it has mer merit? Because not everybody has the confidence yeah. to uh, just up and, you know, take a take an idea. So did your uh, supervisor help you? How did you go about it? Um, I don't think I ever had specific help. Um, I have run abstracts by uh, and, and at the first couple of conferences that I applied to. So that was uh, the Southeastern Medieval Association. Um, and then I presented one at the Mid-America Medieval Association. Those are much those are smaller conferences than the ones I've been presenting at more recently. And I think that can help if you know that it's um, going to be a little bit smaller, a little bit more intimate. Um, it just means there won't be quite as many people you don't know. Um, I don't, so I would ask for help on my abstracts to make sure they sounded right and to make sure they conveyed my idea correctly. Um, but I, I don't remember having any specific help, um, sort of with the ideas. I would use papers that I wrote in seminars, um, and I got good marks on and I got good feedback on, um, to, uh, to apply with. Um, basically I figured if, if it was good enough for the class, it suggested the idea had at least some merit to it. Um, and then I would go through the rewriting process of so taking out some of the information that is class specific, um, you know, uh, at incorporating some of the suggestions I got on the feedback for that paper um, and, you know, doing some additional research as I realized that there were some questions that I left unanswered. No, and uh, I agree with you, Mitchell. Uh, like as an international student, uh, we have the opportunity to uh, do one conference per mm -hmm. year, per academic year. I guess that maybe it also applies for for American students and, and since I came, I start uh, doing the same thing just to be able to explore what the United States looks like. Yeah. Also try to do networking. But then there is something that uh, I would like to ask you, how do you choose which conference do you want to send your abstract? There is a bunch of conferences yeah. right now. So do you track uh, who is uh, organizing it? Do you have a particular university on mind? So in your field, uh, how do you choose which conference you want to go? Or you want to submit your abstract, of course. Uh, yeah, um, I think in some ways, uh, I sort of, I try to pick conferences that have themes that year that relate to my work. Um, and I, I try not to worry too much about um, the prestige of the conference, because I think that some people get hung up on, you know, like, am I presenting at a conference that's quote unquote worth my time? Um, and the thing is, you're going to meet people at even the smallest regional conference that are interesting and exciting and can help you with your work and can uh, potentially be future mentors. Um, I think, uh, let's see, uh, so so some of it I think is just sort of looking, casting a wide net. Um, I have an idea of a few that do exist and I check their abstract or I check their CFPs regularly, their call for papers that is regularly um, to see if there's um, an active one. Um, so I think, uh, 
where I've learned a lot of the names are from my advisors. So I think if a student is uh, would like to present and but they don't know where to present or they don't know what's available in their discipline, um, I'd go straight to the advisor and say, uh, where should I present or what places have um, opportunities? Um, for example, there's the um, Kasana Celtic um, Studies Association of North America um, is a it's a uh, uh, organization um, that fosters Celtic studies, as they say, uh, specifically, usually medieval Celtic studies um, in North America. And I did not know they existed until talking to Dr. Smith about it during my um, master's degree. And then, and now it's something that's on my radar. I've not presented at it yet, um, but because uh, I haven't quite had a good paper for their themes, um, but uh, it's it's one I check regularly um, just to sort of see when their, their stuff comes up. And being part of their mailing list has also um, put me in contact or put me, allowed me to see some of the other opportunities within Celtic studies uh, because their mailing list will oftentimes have CFPs for smaller conferences or more regional conferences, um, other international conferences that um, are associated with that um, or that, that are closely allied with them. Okay, uh, Mitchell, you mentioned uh, future mentors. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I have, I have experienced as well now as an international student, or, or maybe also that could happen to, to any other student, how do you approach to possible mentors? Or do you wait that they reach out to you after you presented and they said, hey, Mitchell, your paper is wonderful. You are going to be the future star. I want to have your email. Or what do you do? So how do you create your networking uh, in that particular conferences as after you have presented your paper? What are some tips and suggestions to expand your networking and find possible uh, mentors in your field? I think uh, for men or for networking, um, I might not be the best source. Um, some kind of an awkward wallflower um, in these situations. Um, but I think one thing uh, that's made it easier for me to have conversations with people I don't know very well is kind of recognizing that a lot of academics are awkward wallflowers. Um, a lot of people are unsure about themselves and the sort of new environments. Um, so, uh, you know, I think um, some of it is just sort of tr trust your art. Like, I would trust the uh, um, sort of social framework or the social skills you already have, because it's not much different in those circumstances. You're just talking about different things, um, you know, um, but even then, you know, like, like a lot of these people are going to be interested in talking about like, where you're from or uh, football or soccer or, you know, like they're people um, and approaching them like people is usually the best. And it's usually the best way to um, uh, give a good impression of yourself too, that you're personable. Um, Mitchell, we have seen how the conference world works, mm -hmm. how you present, how you do the networking. Now, my question is, because what is important is what goes behind, like mm -hmm. your writing, mm -hmm. how you present your abstract. So uh, I am struggling right now just to write in my dissertation. So uh, because you have experience writing and, and uh, in the link of the episode, I will put uh, one link of Mitchell's article that he has written for a uh, Walton Insight. Uh, my question for you is how do people can get better on writing? How can you develop your ideas and how can you edit your own work without having to pay to someone else 
doing mm -hmm. it for you because right now that's the business. I have heard about that part. Hey, Guillermo, don't worry. Just write your dissertation and pay this amount of dollars and your advisor is going to be happy. But no, I, I don't have the money. I'm a graduate student. So I have to do it by myself. So any advice mm -hmm. on that part, Mitchell? Yeah. Um, well, so editing, I will go to right away because I think that's got a, a kind of an easy fix. Um, and this is advice I give to, so I teach uh, composition one quite regularly. So I teach a lot of um, new college writers um, and it's, it's read, read it aloud. There is nothing that I write um, for other people's eyes that I don't read aloud at least three or four times. Um, even things that are intended to be silently read, so like the Walton Insights articles, I read those all aloud. Um, and the reason being is it uh, is, you know, when we read in our um, when we read in our heads, especially when we read our own work, um, we're really good at silently editing it um, because we know what we meant. We know, um, and so so our, our brain sort of like auto corrects um, in a lot of ways. Uh, but by reading it aloud, you're sort of engaging that language um, center in a slightly different way. And so some of the things that your brain would correct for you um, because it's recon it recognizes what you meant, um, your mouth won't automatically correct. And so you'll, you'll see the places where you misspelled a word or you use the wrong, um, the wrong homophone um, that has a slightly different stress pattern or whatever. Um, and, uh, and it becomes easier to edit that because you're, you've got that sort of like distance between the reading process. Um, and I find that I catch most of my non-fluencies. I catch most of my, um, you know, wording errors because you'll catch it when things are like worded unnaturally or difficult to understand because now you're hearing it too. And you're sort of hearing it like a listener. Yeah. So um, when you're, uh... When you're going through this process, do you also edit as you write, or do you create a gap between readings? How do you go about editing? Yeah, I am. Um, I do both. Uh, I do edit as I write. Um, so you know, as I'll get to a section and I'll get to a spot where it's like I don't quite know where I want to go next, I'll then um, circle back and work through the last couple of paragraphs I wrote just to make sure there weren't any obvious errors. Um, but uh, Aisha, your um, question about space is, I think, crucial too. So I always try to give myself a day um, between editing or between writing and then going in for like a, like a, this is a day I'm going to do most of the editing on. Um, and, and again, it's to create space. It's to separate yourself emotionally a little bit from that work. Um, because we're, we're like, a lot of us get really attached to what we write. Um, and being able to uh, take that time can give you just a little bit of that cipher. Um, especially it's useful if you can find somebody to read your work, um, because they won't be quite as attached to phrasing it in such and such a way as, as you are. Um, but absent that, um, making sure you give yourself adequate time, um, building in that adequate time into your writing process. Okay. So, um, do you plan your writing? And that is actually what I wanted to talk to you about, uh, the abstract for was, uh, you know, what are some of the key components that you make sure you get into the abstract and then work from, I don't know if you work with an outline, could you tell us something about that? Yeah. Um, no, I, I almost never work with an outline. Um, I've done it in the past, but it's just not, um, I found that it just doesn't add a whole lot to my writing process. Um, so usually I come in with, um, a good thesis. So I come in with something that I want to argue and I, um, have, you know, two or three, uh, like pieces I really want to hit. Like this is, 
um, like here's an argument that I uh, that I think is necessary for this um, for this thesis, and here's a second one, something like that, um, and that I write to. And when I get there and I realize that I have some problems or I have some questions that I leave open, I go back and I sort of recursively continue the research process to to make sure that the the um, build up to that point makes sense is justifiable. Um, and then moving on to the next one makes sense. So, you know, I connect all the information together. Um, so I, I guess I, I sort of explore as I'm writing. Um, and, uh, but that requires that I'm open to going back and work, reworking things that I already wrote, because I do occasionally realize that I've made mistakes. Um, actually more than occasionally, I realize that I made mistakes, um, and I need to go back and fix some of those arguments, um, as, as, um, but I think having it on the page makes it easier for me to edit because, I'm not having to write it afresh again. I just, now I can um, use some of the words that I used before, um, but include you know, better information. All right. So uh, what are some of the things that you'd say you need to get into an abstract, like, you know, the mm -hmm. theoretical perspectives, the argument, how, how would you plan an abstract? Because that is what represents you at a, at a conference entry. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the most important thing is making sure they know what you are arguing, and I would front load that um, in the in the uh, abstract, right? Like the abstract is not the time to play coy with any of your um, with any of your arguments or any of your um, like like necessary takeaways. Um, so the first thing is make sure they have that argument. Um, then I would have like one specific example just to make sure that it's clear. Um, and it illustrates, it clearly illustrates what you're going for um, so that they can sort of envision what that paper might sound like or envision what that paper might look like. Um, so for this um, Leeds, uh, for, for the International Congress that's being held in Leeds, um, I was, uh, um, I'm arguing about, uh, there's these two poets and they both use the same version, the same altered version of um the uh the, the life of saint margaret of antioch um and i i made that clear and i made it clear how i'm connecting them the fact is that one of them is the hand for manuscript that contains this version of the life and the other wrote a poem that uses the same sort of descriptions as that um, manuscript version and so that's my clear um example my clear illustration and then the argument that grows out of that is that clearly they have a relationship because they're um uh, they're they're the same generation of poets, so they're they're they seem to be reading themselves or reading the same source, um, and so and so then you have this like really nice tight paragraph that um, is almost your paper in mini, just without all of the supporting evidence to prove how watertight it is. Um, so, what would you say is the purpose of a conference paper? Mm. Um, I think a conference paper is a place primarily for you to explore an idea, um, right? It's not published. It's not permanent. Um, so if it does have some mistakes, it's okay. Um, and and it, it gives you an opportunity to, um, so after you've experimented with that idea, it's also given you a place to get some feedback. So you take it to the conference and uh, somebody might uh, ask you a question that makes you think about it in a way that you weren't encouraged to think about it by yourself, um, or they can offer small correctives or point out works that um, might be present in the um, in the discipline, but you just haven't encountered yet. Um, so I, um, I I presented a paper, my first paper actually was on Beowulf and its readership. Um, 
and I brought it to Mid-America, um, uh, the, the Medieval Association of Mid-America, MAMA, um, which the University of Arkansas just hosted this last spring or this last fall. And, um, and I presented it and I thought it was a fairly decent paper. Um, and then Johanna uh, 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 Kramer, um, I believe that's her name. Um, she asked me a question in that panel, um, sort of prodding me to think about this Benedictine readership that I was thinking about in a different way. Um, and I was able to incorporate that um, in my paper. Um, and and uh, because I was, I was over relying on Alfred and I wasn't thinking about other Benedictines at the time, being able to think of, bring in some of these other perspectives um, that I hadn't even considered bringing in, um, just fleshed out that paper and um, I think strengthened the argument overall. Um, so that's how it looked like for me um, for that particular paper. All right. So when you present a paper, um, is it you know, like some people read it through and through and mm -hmm. others like make it like a presentation? So what would be your suggestion? I like to read my paper straight. Um, I don't like to try to ad lib at all um, because I know that I'll miss points that I want to talk about. Um, I, I think uh, I approach writing a conference paper a little bit different than I approach writing stuff I'm going to publish. Um, and or published for silent reading. Um, and that's uh, that I try to make it sound a bit like a conversation. Um, and so so maybe I'm striking a balance between being able, having that natural presentation sort of quality um, and also having a script that I have to read. Um, but I, I write everything um, that I'm going to say. Um, I don't go off script too often. Um, but for maybe uh, when I notice, like in the process of uh, giving my presentation, that there's one sentence that just still doesn't make any sense, and I I'll, I'll fix it quietly. Um, but yeah, you know, like if I'm gonna have make if I'm gonna crack a joke, it's written into my paper. Um, I write with a slightly more colloquial um, uh, register just to make it sound more like I'm having a conversation with my audience rather than sort of reading a formal dry paper. Um, and uh, and yeah. Um, Mitchell, last question. So what would happen or what would you suggest to people if they go to a conference and, mm -hmm. and nobody asks any question? So do you, how do you motivate them to keep attending conferences? Because that's some of the things that there are some conferences that you're going to receive a lot of feedback or nice questions as you, as mm -hmm. you mentioned that it, they help you to to build and improve your research, but then what happened when you go to conferences and that they barely ask you something? Tips on that part? Yeah, um, I mean the first the first thing to keep in mind is that it's not an indictment on your work. Um, they just they didn't have a good question. Maybe maybe it's because your argument was just so so solid, so watertight that um, that they had they had no question to ask. You had answered all the questions. Um, probably not, but uh, but maybe. Um, my my ego definitely likes to think that that's the case, um, but uh, you, you know sometimes it just happens that you as a graduate student are put onto a panel with two professors, um, you know two full professors who have made a bit of a name for themselves in uh, their particular discipline, and so the people who are going are more interested in seeing what they have to say and more interested in asking them questions, um, and it kind of feels like a snub, um, but in general it's not. Um, like no one's doing it on purpose. It's just, you know, sometimes it's an accident of um, where you've presented or who you're presenting with. Um, I've presented to nearly empty rooms before. Um, so at the Southeastern Medieval, uh, sorry, Southeastern um, Modern Language Association, SCMLA, uh, there we go. 
Um, I've presented on um, a panel uh, last fall that was like, it was me, the panelists, and I think two other people in the room. Um, and so there weren't very many questions. The people who were in the attending the room were friends with the other panelists. And so it seems like it was kind of, um, so, uh, you know, it, it sucked. Um, it kind of felt like I was, uh, it kind of felt like it was all for naught. Um, but then, you know, I, I think about the fact that uh, I um, really enjoyed the paper. I, I really, st I still stand by the arguments I made there um, about um, some translations from Latin into Middle English. Um, and I knew that it was, I knew it was good. I got good feedback on the paper from um, Dr. Quinn. Um, and when I asked him about maybe publishing it, um, he thought it was, um, he thought it was a good paper that was, was worth that sort of treatment. Um, so I haven't published it yet, but it is something that I've, I've got sort of on the back burner that I return to every now and then. Um, so some of it is just, you know, trust that you got in on your own merits. Um, and the process of presentation will only get easier. Um, so even if you get one of those situations where you feel like you were totally ignored, um, you have acquired good experience um, and maybe think about uh, what your panelists did a little bit differently than you. Um, and it might be able, you might be able to, to tailor your next, um, your next pre conference presentation just to be a, um, that much more engaging. If maybe it was just a, a, an engagement thing you, you weren't ready for or you didn't know about. Because um, sometimes that happens, you know, you realize there's like a disciplinary way of communicating things that you don't find out about until you're with other fellow, um, other fellows in, in the discipline. And, um, you know, um, it can be difficult because at a university oftentimes, right, like you, your advisor, and maybe one peer are the people who work in your discipline. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are in closely related disciplines to you, um, but they still sort of are doing slightly different things with slightly different people who have slightly different ways of communicating. And so those conferences are ways to get to see people who are working directly in your stuff, just like you are, um, and see how those people are communicating with each other. Well, Mitchell, if this was um, an abstract for a conference, I will say to people that enjoyed your paper, as Mitchell has argued in this episode, follow your interests trust on yourself and remember you, you're good you are unique and you are doing what you like thank you mitchell for uh helping us exploring the world of conferences thank you for sharing your research and thank you for accepting the invitation mitchell absolutely thank you all for inviting me it was good to see you all <laughs>